This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book and is the second part of number one of a series entitled Saul, who also is called Paul. The reason why we have to subdivide is that the subject was too big to be included in one session. So you're not getting less, you're getting more, as it were, by this very fact. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we must remember that he was a Jew. And he had all the prejudices and all the background of a very religious Jew. Not only so, he said he was of the straightest sect of his religion, a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were a straight sect. And if he belonged to the straightest sect and was most advanced, you could see what grace must have been manifested in breaking down that terrific self-importance, the despising of others. You remember our Saviour, who would never have spoken ill of anyone. In his parable he said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. Pharisee lifted up his eyes and said, God, I thank thee, I am not as other men are. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all I possess, and I am not like this publican. But he said, the publican durst not lift up his eyes to heaven, but said, God, be merciful, be propitious to me, not merely a sinner, he never bothered about the Pharisee. And our Saviour's comment was, I tell you that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Well now we got from the lips of our Saviour himself what a self-righteous Pharisee was like in his estimation. And the Apostle Paul has given you in the epistle to the Philippians an outline of a character which you could hardly match in any known company of God's people. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the righteous requirements of the law, blameless. And then came that terrific moment when he was stricken down on the road to Damascus and changed from Saul, the persecutor, to Paul, the apostle. But that we must look at in a moment the change of name. His own statement, if you'd like to turn to Acts 22, his own statement is, I suppose, what we should allow him to tell us himself. Acts 22, men, brethren and fathers. He was a man who was addressing the Hebrews and he had ceased to be reckoned among them. He was now a marked man and they would have taken his life if they could. But he still addressed them, men, brethren, and fathers. Hear ye my defence, which I make now unto you. When they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue, to them they kept the more silence. And he, see, he was able to speak Hebrew. The Roman guard said to him, Canst thou speak Greek? And so God can use these abilities 
We mustn't despise them and say it's all a matter of the Spirit. It is a matter of the Spirit, but we can, the more we can lay at his feet to be used by him, the better. So when they heard the Hebrew tongue spoken by this man, they listened. And this is what he said of himself. I am verily a man which am a Jew. So he's making the statement still, I am a Jew. Born at Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. Yet, uh, there may have been a reason why he said yet, because I think I mentioned to you that Cilicia, which was pronounced with a K, not written with a soft C, there were three Ks that were said to be terrible in their wickedness, and Cilicia was one of them. Cappadocia is another. He said, I was born at Tarsus. But he says, I was brought up in this city, where? Jerusalem. At the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles more than once. And he has a reputation outside the Bible of being a fair, just-minded man. He intervenes in the Acts of the Apostles and said, Oh, we must give them a chance, let them speak. And so this man who was brought up as a rigid Pharisee, nevertheless, had the influence upon him in his younger days of Gamaliel. God knows what he's doing with his servants and those who are being prepared for ultimate service. At the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Notice, he didn't say the law of Moses. He didn't say the law of God. He was taught in the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. And by the time you know what the law of the fathers involves, you'll realise it was a rigmarole from morning till night and night to morning of all sorts of things to be observed until it became a terrific burden. And that's the Pharisee of the Pharisees who undertook that attitude toward the word of God. And was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And then he said, I persecuted this way unto the death. And you know what's turned and made him start that, don't you? If you'll just let me finish reading this little bit, we'll turn and see again. Binding and delivering unto prisons both men and women, and also the high priest doth bear we witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And then comes the great light. Then comes the inquiry. Who art thou? Lord. Now this Hebrew of the Hebrews, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, would never have conceived of anyone in heaven speaking as the Lord, but Jehovah, the God of Israel. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer, I am Jesus. And that came from heaven. And that blinding light was also a parallel to the blinding light that turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the apostle. And so we have this earthen vessel so wonderfully fitted for the work he had to do. 
He could sympathize and understand completely the attitude of his Jewish brethren. But we find that he was brought up at Tarsus in Cilicia, and Tarsus in Cilicia was a university city, and as I think I mentioned in our last, time, last uh, meeting, the statue of Sardinapolis was there, and round that statue was the quotation, Eat, drink, enjoy yourself, the rest is nothing. And you can understand how that appealed to him when he began to see the glory of the resurrection, for he almost quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15, if there be no resurrection, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here we have this earthen vessel. And he so dominates the New Testament, so far as you and I are concerned, that we can't get away from him. And I don't think we should, we should wish to be, because he definitely tells us that he himself is a pattern. And the words that he's given us are to be the form. And there's no difference between those two words. They are in English, of course, but he used the same word twice. You can translate it pattern twice, or form twice, or you can leave it as it stands. But that is what God said, not what he said. That's what God intended he should be, a pattern. And his message, a pattern for us to follow. So the more we know about him, the better we should understand what our attitude should be. And we are certainly not idolizing Paul, the man. We are thanking God for using that earthen vessel to give us such an example of what his grace can accomplish. The contrasting sect in Israel was the Sadducees. And of course it's a great temptation to say because they did not believe in the resurrection they were sad, you see. But please don't say that's the meaning of the word. I ought not to have said it, did I? You find in the 23rd chapter of this um, same Acts of the Apostles a reference to the Sadducees, we might as well we might as well uh, see. Paul is before the council. He was a member of the council. And he got papers, you remember, authority from the council to go to Damascus and bring back those men and women who believe Christ. Now he himself is before them and being judged. He said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And I suppose he could say that. He was a good conscientious Pharisee. Now he says, I'm a good conscientious Christian. Doesn't mean to say that it didn't matter whether you were one or the other, but he said, I did really act up to and believe what I taught. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. That was the answer of the high priest. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. I'm almost glad, I'll go careful what I say, this is the one occasion where the apostle manifested he was a man of like passions as ourselves. But he immediately corrected himself. He said, oh, I ought not to have said that about the high priest. Thou whited wall. Sometimes we have to confess we've said things that we ought not to have said. And so here we have the Apostle, smitten by the high priest on the mouth, and for a moment manifesting that he was a man of flesh and blood, as you and I are. 
God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. It's about the only occasion we get it. But I can sense, I think, and you can sense, in some of the epistles of Paul, how keenly he felt certain things, and how wonderful the grace of God was that used him in spite of it all. And then it says, verse 6, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, now, you may say this was artful of him, but it was what you might expect. He's up before a council, and this council had the power of life and death. And he saw that there were the Pharisees there, there were the Sadducees there. It was as though we had a meeting, and one lot were the Tories, and the other the Labour Party. So the one who was up before them, he, he gets them going at loggerheads. That's what he did. And when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out into the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Well, a moment he said that, there was a dissension because the Pharisees believed the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. So now we're beginning to get something character of this man and the way in which the Lord raised him up, used him, and yet reveals that he was a man of like passions to ourselves. And while we're not glad that anybody slips and makes mistakes, we're glad it's recorded so that we don't feel that the plaster of Paris saint is the way in which we must conceive of these true saints of God. He speaks about the being a Pharisee. Well, unfortunately, we think of a Pharisee from one angle only. There are about 14 different types of Pharisees mentioned by different writers at different times. They may have all been much of a muchness. I've only got seven here, but they may interest you if I just give you what has been gathered from some of the writings of the very days of the Apostle as to the different types even among this one sect of Pharisees. There was the Shechemite Pharisee. Now he was a Pharisee for self-interest. It wasn't that he cared very much about the laws that he was following and the ordinances and that, but for some reason or another, it was a self-interest that made him a Pharisee. That's the way they ticked that one off. And then there was another one whose name would have been Uriah Heap if he'd lived in England. Only, of course, Uriah Heap isn't Hebrew. And he was called a tumbling Pharisee because he was always parading his humility, always walking with a bowed head, always making it obvious that he was so humble. And his father and mother were all humble. You know the idea, don't you? That's another form of pride. Pride to be humble in the wrong sense. A Pharisee called the tumbling Pharisee. And then there was another one who in order to demonstrate that he was so pure-minded that when he was out in the street he never looked at a woman. Oh, no. He always had blood on his forehead because he walked with bowed head and ran his head into a brick wall rather than look. You see, this is all so arrant nonsense to us that when you come to think of it as the description of those who were the leaders of the people, the teachers of the people, the ones who knew the law and so on, you see, how they needed an interposition of a son of God 
and those apostles who were raised up by him to deliver them and us from such. I don't know whether I need read you all these as the timid Pharisee, but there's one I think that the Apostle Paul belonged to. The only way in which you can translate the title of this Pharisee is tell me another thing and I'll do it, Pharisee. All out. Well, that's what the Apostle was. All out, wasn't he? And can't you see that that characteristic of him was used by the Lord? For the moment he was a Christian, he was all out for the very truth he persecuted and for the very Christ he had denied. All out. So God knows his purposes. He knows the vessels he's going to use and he can prepare them beforehand without them being conscious of it. The um, training of the Apostle is also of consequence to us as we gather from the Scriptures what would be the characteristic um, the character, characteristic uh, training of such a man. At the age of five, five years of old, of age, he would be taught the Sheba. Now, there's one person in this congregation who knows what the Sheba is. But there's a possibility that you Gentiles are so ignorant, I'll have to tell you. The Shema is the opening word of a verse in the Law of Moses, and it means hear. Like the name Samuel is heard of God. Shema is the word to hear. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. At the age of five, at that sensitive age, the one thing that he would learn to repeat and to stand for was the unity of the Godhead. And of course the unity of the God is essential truth. But it was, could be used to deny the person of Christ, as it did. They were so convinced that God was one that any attempt to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ as being divine, of course, was absolutely contrary to their upbringing. Next time we meet together, I hope to have, so that you can see them, the way in which this Shema, this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, is held in such importance. Because if you can see, as it's in the Hebrew Bible, I'll have it to show you, that the, the writers of the text have put large letters at the beginning and the end of that verse, so that looking at it from a distance, you don't see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You see the word ed, which means witness. They stress the fact. By doing that in every Bible that I've ever looked at, there's one on the shelf there, if you look up Deuteronomy 6 and turn the page, even though you can't read it, you'll see the letter standing out in big. That was their great witness. The Lord our God is one. So do remember all this is behind Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, who became Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ. I've just got to note here that the Pharisee originated in the days of Ezra. Should we just go back and pick that little piece up? Ezra. That's um, chapter 6 
21. Ezra chapter 6, 21. Sorry I'm taking such a time. Um, oh, and the children of Israel which were come again out of the captivity and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, they did eat together. So here was a separated people and that's the meaning of the word Pharisee. The word Pharisee is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word and it means to separate. They were a separated people. And it started there in chapter 9, verse 1, while we have Ezra open. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to be saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. So is again an emphasis on the need for separation. And once more in chapter 10, Verse 11 and 12. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land. Now that's where the word Pharisee comes from and the idea of being separated and it was a right one. But you see, how sad it is for human nature because of human nature that the very right thing can become abused and you could be so separate that you forget the other graces that should go with it and modify it. So that's just in passing. Now from, from a child at the age of five, Saul of Tarsus would have had drilled into him the witness of his people. The Lord our God is one. Then at the age of six he would go to the vineyard. Would you say, oh that was early to go to the vineyard, oh, but the vineyard was the word they called the school. That's where he started learning in the school at the age of six. And by the time he reached the age of ten, he was able to recite what is called the oral law, the, the spoken law. And uh, not only so, but he was acquainted with the Mishnah, which means the interpretation of that law. Next time we meet together, I hope you will have in front of you evidences of this so that I won't attempt to explain it but it's so much easier when you can see the script yourself and then we have at the age of 13 he became a son of the law a son of the law now I'm just going to look at this can you see this little book I wonder if you guess what it is it's a prayer book and it's a Jewish prayer book And I'm going to read uh, it's very small print I'm going to read um, from the prayer that the Apostle Paul would have said at the age of 13 and said it practically every day of his life till he became a Christian. Now listen to this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who hath not made me a heathen. That's the word Gentile. So there was one prayer. Lord, I thank thee, I wasn't made a Gentile. The next one. Blessed art thou, O God, Lord our God, 
king of the universe, who hath not made me a slave. And then the third one, Blessed art thou, our God, king of the universe, who hath not made me a woman. Now you think of that effect upon a mind at the age of 13, onwards, thanking God in the synagogue service that he was not made a woman. Can you think of the effect upon the whole of the people? But there's something more than that. Let me turn you to the epistle to the Galatians. And perhaps you've anticipated it already. In the epistle to the Galatians, if you know what Paul, if you know what Paul had been brought up to recite, you could almost understand uh, that he says, um, oh, where am I? I can't find a passage now. When it says, oh, thank you. Yes. That's the one, yes, thanks very much. He says in verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, whatever you do when you read this, don't say, there is neither. That's using the word there in the sense that we use it. No, he says, there, there in that place. Emphasize it, there, where? In Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There in Christ is neither bond nor free. There in Christ is neither male nor female. Don't you see? He says the very three things that he all his lifetime since the age of 13 had thanked God. I was not born a Gentile. I was not born a slave. I was not born a woman. He says the whole thing's washed out in Christ. All oh, what grace must have been at work in the heart of that man to have undone, I might say, a lifetime's uh, sense of being different and separated, set apart in this way. And the grace of God that can turn a persecutor into a preacher like he does does, is the grace of God that Paul preaches and is presented to you as the only converting power. You remember in the Acts of the Apostles? The very next day, practically, the very next chapter, after he's stricken down on the road to Damascus, he confounds the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Well, he got everything at his finger ends. He knew the Bible from the, of the Old Testament inside out. And the moment he had his eyes open to see, there was his proof. So we have the value of teaching our children the word of God, whether they are believers or whether they're not. It's the way in which God uses his word, perhaps years afterwards, that may be the, the blessing that we are seeking for them. Now, there were 613 precepts of the law uh, connected by a famous rabbi, Moses Maimonides. But I have a picture I want to show you before this series is over, and I'll reserve references to that so that you may have that before you at the same time. Now, the question arises about Paul and marriage. He says that he had the authority and the power to lead about a wife like Peter. But we have no reference any time, anywhere, of a wife waiting for him at Tarsus or wherever it might be. And the uh, idea usually is that he was an unmarried man. Well now, if you know anything 
of the uh, attitude of the Jewish law. And if you know that Paul was a stickler for the Jewish law, and he was also a member of the governing class of the Jewish law, and you know in the Jewish law that he had learned from a child, it says, that if a man reaches and passes the age of 21 without being married, he's practically living in sin. How could the council entrust a man like that who was breaking the very law he was supposed to be upholding? So you say, so what? Well, as far as I can interpret, he must have been a married man, otherwise he would never have been accepted as he was, but that he was a widower and he didn't marry the second time. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why we can see that affectionate attachment. God gave him a son. He didn't give him a son in the ordinary, everyday sense, but he gave him a son called Timothy. And sometimes Timothy was a burden on his heart. It was all to the good of the Apostle Paul that he shouldn't be just separated entirely from some of the affairs of this life. Now, we look at the, um, the card that you have in front of you, and it refers to the time when the Apostle name was changed. So, shall we now turn back to the Acts of the Apostles? 13th chapter, I think it is. It says in in verse 13, let's look at the beginning. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simon that was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and just thrown in as a sort of make-weight, and Saul. He comes last, and he said, and Saul. One of them is called Niger, one of them was brought up with Herod and Saul. Now, that's the one that the Lord chose, the last one. And as I ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, or the word that would come to the ears of a man whose very profession was a separated person, Pharisee. Pharisee. He's got to be separated. But this is a new separation. Can't you see how strongly that thought is in the Apostle's mind when he wrote in Galatians, God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace that I should preach him among the Gentiles? Separated. Can you hear it in Romans, the first chapter? Paul, separated unto the gospel of God. Oh, yes, he said. Oh, yes. Once I was a separated person in the form of a Pharisee, now I've been, and he played on the word, now I've been aphorismai, that's the Greek word, now I've been separated under the gospel of God. Here it took place. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, unto the work, uh, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and had laid hands on them, they sent them away. Well, now they travel and go by the direction of the Holy Spirit into Seleucia, from thence I sailed to Cyprus, and I came to Salamis, 
and in that they, uh, island there was a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. B-A-R is the word for son, like Bartholomew. You remember when they brought our Saviour, Pilate brought our Saviour out, there was Barabbas, and Barabbas means the son of his father. There were two of them. He was the son of his father, our Saviour. He was the son of his father, a murderer, and they chose him. And so we have this this um, Jew. Now what was the attitude of this Jew? Verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus. Is that striking a note with you, friends? This man has never been called Paul yet in the writings of the Acts of the Apostles. He's Saul. Saul always. But here's a man who's a Roman governor whose name is Paul. And they've actually got coins in our museums that were struck with this man's name on it from this very island. He was a prudent man and he called for Barnabas and Saul. He didn't call for Paul. He, he didn't have the name at that moment. Who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now what was the attitude of Elimus, the sorcerer? He withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Now this was the beginning of Paul's ministry in the Acts. What was the end of Paul's ministry in the Acts? The antagonism of the Jewish people withstanding and once again the Gentile becomes the object of his ministry. Now listen to this. Seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, now for the first time in, in history, we know he had the other name, Paul. We don't mean to say that he was called Paul now for the first time. But this was in harmony with Jewish practice. I think I've mentioned before in this meeting, but uh, I'll mention it again. I remember seeing a cartoon in Punch many years ago. It was just a, a little back street that you might find in Whitechapel. A group of boys standing at the corner and a woman leaning out of the window of a house along the street. She says, I key! And one of the boys says to the other one, Bill, your mother wants you. He was Ike, Isaac, in the house. But out in the street with the other boys, Gentiles as well, he was Bill. Now it was a custom that they should have a Hebrew name and a Gentile name. And now for the first time you're told that Saul was also called Paul. And it's done on purpose to link him with the Gentile who believed and the Jew who was an apostate. Don't you see how it's all prophetic and working out in harmony with his calling? And Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, All full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind. The blindness settled upon Israel in Acts 28. And here it's settling upon this antagonist the moment Paul comes into his right dominion as Paul. 
You can't say it's accidental, can you? And look, not seeing the sun for a season, for blindness in part hath happened unto Israel until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled and then all Israel shall be saved. So he wasn't going to be blinded forever, but for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So there we have this man. When you look at um, chapter 10 of the Acts of the Apostles, The reason I'm saying that is that uh, at the end of the Acts of the Apostles it says uh, let me just go to the last verse there and quote it exactly. Uh, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence no man forbidding him. And if you'll look at Acts 10, 47 Peter says can any man forbid water now this is a Jew who remains a Jew this is Peter the apostle of the circumcision he says can any man forbid this man who's a Gentile so you see at the end of the Acts you know what the idea no man forbidding is there was no possibility now of anybody standing up and forbidding the gospel to go to the Gentile, even it was overruled in this day, but you can see the attitude, and you'll find that they called the apostle to account, and they said, you, you give a, you give an, a, a little idea of what you've been doing, we hear you've, you've eaten with the Gentiles. So that you see, even after Pentecost, there was no idea that the Jew and the Gentile had merged into one. They were still very separate. Well, that gives us some little idea of the earthen vessel, Saul, who also is called Paul. Now, before we can leave this part of the story, there is much that I would like to go over with you in connection with the background of his teaching. And next time we meet together, I hope to be able to show you, not merely to speak about it, what we mean by the Masora and the Masoretic texts what we mean by suspended letters, what we mean by all the things that they did to safeguard and interpret the scriptures, so that you should have a little idea of the meticulous upbringing of this man of God that was used so much by Christ for our blessing. There I think I must leave it for the time being and pray that we've seen enough to justify our meeting together and that you will rejoice that the grace of God not only brought down this man low as he did, but he exalted him in another sense so that he becomes the apostle of the Gentiles. And you and I must continually thank God for the fact that Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the humble servant of the Christ that he persecuted in the form of his believers, but has now come to us bringing us salvation, and that beyond all dreams. <laughs>